Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Du lytter til Rytterjargon podcast. Mit navn er Mads Hyrt-Smith, og jeg er professionel cykelrytter. Så mange af jer gætter rigtigt, så er denne uges gæst Greg Henderson. Greg startede som ung på BMX, men fik sine første gennembrud på banen, inden en lang karriere som professionel på landevejen med flere store sejre. Nu arbejder han som coach på mit hold, Israel Premier Tech. Tak til Mati og Mikkel fra Pro Cycling Quiz for at udlede et spil til en heldig vinder, som netop er trukket fra puljen af alle de rigtige svar. Så tillykke, Lasse Jensen, der bliver sendt et ProCycling Quiz, brætspil afsted mod dig. Smut gerne omkring iTunes og giv en anmeldelse, det vil jeg sætte stor pris på. Tak, fordi I lytter med. Greg Henderson, welcome. Thanks, mate. How's pleasure. it going? Hey, pleasure to be here. That's good. Really good. Yeah, so you're retired pro. You live in Girona. And uh, what are you doing now? Yep, so I was... I used to live in Girona here for 13, 12, 13 years as a professional. And then, um, you know, once I retired, everyone sort of, like every professional bike rider, I think, shits their pants for a, for a couple of months going, what am I going to do? Yeah. And, uh, but no, I always had a real passion for, for the coaching side and the scientific side of things around cycling. So I decided to go back to university and um, someone shipped back to New Zealand um, and finish off a exercise and sport and exercise science degree um you know majoring in exercise physiology um and yeah i did that for what do you know phone I'm, ringing <laughs> so eric wants to have a chat to us oh, shit. <laughs> director in the team yeah um yeah so i went back and did a sport finished off my sports science degree and then um i started working with uh, Israel Premier Tech, or Israel Startup Nation back then. Um, I started working with them, but I was sort of commuting from, from New Zealand, which wasn't so bad in itself until we got struck by COVID. COVID, yeah. yeah. And so every time I was going back to New Zealand, uh, I was doing two weeks in a hotel room Yeah, because well. Australia and New Zealand had that crazy rule that you had to be in isolation in a hotel that they picked. Correct. For two weeks, yeah. Correct. And and getting in was so hard, like, because there was such a waiting list to get actually back into the country. It was, and then there was the, our, our our DS calls and our coaching calls that would happen at like four in the morning for me. So it was just, it was horrible times, you know, and it was just, it just, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was integrating with the team very well either. I mean, the riders, I, I knew all the riders and I got on with the riders, you know, as I do, because I was a recently retired pro, so i really understand the riders and and the race as well. It was just the staff and 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 feeling the flow of the team. I found really difficult because I I feel I felt kind of like almost ostracized. You know, I come in, do a grand tour and a couple of other races, go home. So yeah, it was it was. Um, so that's when I decided, right? You know, if I'm going to give this job a real crack, um, I've got to come back here. Yeah, it's easier in Europe. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the same time zone. You know, 
just for example, then Eric can ring me now and have a yeah. chat if he wants to talk about something or anyone and the team can get hold of me. Yeah. Whereas I'm in New Zealand, I'm asleep usually. Also, when you're a coach, it's, it's better to be in the same time so oh, someone sure. as your athletes. Yeah, for sure. Okay, having said that, I do have a lot of New Zealand athletes I do coach on the side. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that, if this is my bread and butter, which is Israel Premier Tech, for sure, be on, be on the same time zone. If, if the guys want to get hold of me, it's, it's a lot easier for sure. So, yeah, back over here, um, I'm living in Fornells, which is, you know, as you know, 5Ks sort of south of, of Girona, and that's where I lived um, as a pro here. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, not a lot's changed in Girona. It's, it's busy. I mean, when I first came to Girona, mate, there was like seven to ten cyclists. Yeah. How many do you reckon are here now? Fuck me, I don't know. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> oh, I mean, including, including cyclists, cyclist wives, or partners yeah. and, and influences and all And then that. the tourism here has gone yeah. crazy over just the last two years. It's, uh, yeah, everything is about cycling here. Mate, it was, it's, and that's one of the reasons I went out. Because even as I was leaving, you know, I retired 2017. So when I was living out in uh, Four Nails, the problem, the, one of the main reasons was if I lived in, in Girona City, if I want to walk to the shops and, and buy something, I'd have to bump into three or four bike riders and yeah. have the same, hey, mate, how you doing? What's your next race? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, mate. And it's like... The classic Gruppetto talk. Yeah. And it's like, dude, I just rode a week with you banging handlebars. I don't yeah. want to now bang handlebars <laughs> with you in the supermarket, you know? Right. It's like... Even where I live, it's, it's better. Like, yeah. if you live in the city center, you see people all the time. But here, I'm just one and a half K out of center. Yeah. And I never see anybody here. Yeah, it's good. It's no. better. I mean, some people love it. I mean, if you're if, if you're a brand new pro and that's where you absolutely you walk down the street and it's, yeah, it's, it's sweet, great. it's yeah, sweet, it's like, perfect. Got to think also some of the charm of Girona is is in the city centre. Oh, no question. Yeah. So, got to have a few years in there. Absolutely, and then of course beautiful restaurants and dinners. It's nice. You know, it almost feels like we're going out. You know, because instead of just walking out your door into a restaurant, if you live there, you, you know, you get dressed and you go to a nice restaurant. And you you plan it for the. Mm. It's quite nice. Yeah. So. You were pro in many years, but you come from New Zealand. And how did it all start with cycling there? Because it's never really been a big cycling nation, has it? And and especially, I guess now, it's just me guessing, it's easier to turn, like get a pro contract and get to Europe from New Zealand now than back when you had to do it. Yeah, you're spot on, mate. Um, yeah, so for me, like my progression sort of, I, I started with BMX as a kid. You know, I went to the world champs as a, as a five, six-year-old kid, you know, and then I moved into track cycling because, as you know, New Zealand's quite, um, you know, the cycling's dominated by track cycling in yeah. New Zealand. But then, you know, it comes a time where you sort of, I sort of decided, I was at university at the same time, so I was studying, training, racing internationally, and I thought, I've got to find out how far I can take this cycling gig, you know, like... Um, because at that moment in time, I didn't really have any ambitions of the Tour de France or I didn't really follow European racing much. It was just time to go, right, how far can we go? So, you know, I won a couple of world titles on the track and, um, you know, I ended up in my career going to five Olympics, um, track and road. But I, my first pro team was over in America. And again, it was one of these sort of um, stair steps. I was just stepping my way through. So I got to the top of American cycling, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd won... The races that the pros come over, you know, Philly Week and, and one sprint jersey and tour of Georgia, tour of California, all those races. So I was like, 
well, maybe I am good enough now to go to Europe. Yeah. So that's when I really pushed was like 2006. I said, right, I'll, I'll see what it's like. And yeah, I was, I, luckily I performed in front of T-Mobile. Um, I won Philadelphia, I uh, won Lancaster. These are these big American races that, you know, six or eight pro teams yeah. from Europe came over to race. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get a contract with um, with T-Mobile, and that's how it sort of all started. But but um, that's where you started your run with uh, Andre already correct. back then. Yeah. So yep. that took you into that part of your career. Correct. Yeah. So that was. Um, I mean, it was a steep learning curve. I mean, you come from America over over to Europe. Yeah, we still see it now with American kids coming to Europe, and they have to learn it. Yeah, it's so different. Yeah, and and so my my big thing that I tell the young guys coming up now. And, I made a pact too with myself was you, you can't think of this like as like a halfway home and like you can't say Europe's not really my home you have to go right bang I'm in here I'm doing this Europe's my home I'll go back to New Zealand to visit whereas a lot of Kiwi guys that have come over they sort of oh I'm not really in Europe I'm just got it like and so I mean Tom Scully would be a, a prime example I said mate spend a lot of money on your sofa and your TV and the PlayStation or just things so when you finish a bike race and you've had your head beaten in for a week Think about on the flight going, oh, mate, I can't wait to crash on my my couch. Or yeah. So you actually look forward to getting home yeah. to your apartment. And I think that's a, a mistake a lot of the young pros from America and New Zealand make. They go, oh, it's not really, home. you know, Aussie's my home or, or New Zealand's my home or America's my home. Yeah, You have to change that mentality and go, right, this is where I'm based. I can't wait to get on my couch and play my PlayStation. You know, yeah. and it, it makes such a difference. So in your career, you were a lead-out guy. Uh, one of the best, um, but major wins. What do you have? Yeah, so I morphed into that job, um, um, lead out. So I was a sprinter, you know, um, Giro stage, Vuelta stage, a um, couple of Paris stages. You know, so I won on the top level and yeah. I, and and against the big boys. So it, it was possible for me to win. Um, you know, Catalonia. Um, ZLM tour, like you know, I I won enough, yeah. often enough. I was I was a pretty classy sprinter. I was a pretty clever sprinter. But then it came to a point where you know when I rode for Sky, 2010, I won nine races that year. So it's actually not a bad, you know, if you go by today's standards, winning nine races, it's 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 quite yeah, um, consistent. Then you're in the top. Yeah, you're. Yeah. A cons- I was a consistent winner. But then I was getting on in age also, um, and you know, like I said, I'm I'm quite a clever sprinter. So then I worked out. I was, I changed because I remember saying um, to my partner at the time, I'm going, if I come head to head right now in a bunch sprint and I've got Andre Greipel, Mark Cavendish, Marcel Kittel, and we all have our good sprint, I'm going to get fourth. Yeah. And as a sprinter, you don't get paid for fourth. No. So I was like, I reckon I, and I always got on with Andre, even though we sprinted against each other often. I knew the only way I could beat Andre was start five bike lengths in front of him mm. because his positioning wasn't perfect, but that was my attribute, was positioning. I'd always find myself at the pointy end of a bike race, and I, I did it with ease. So that's what, I guess, then led on to being a good sprinter. So then I was like, well, if I work with Andre again, because his one fault is positioning. He really struggles in that last one or two kilometres on, on how to get to the front. Maybe we should just say when we talk about Andre, we talk about Andre Greipel. Yeah, Andre Greipel, the gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and th- so then the year before I went to work with him, he won nine races or, or 11 races. 
So a really good season. Yeah. The year I went for him, worked for him in 2012, he won 22 races. It just become boom. Instant, we just clicked, you know, yeah. and then we designed a lead out. Then we had Jurgen Rawlins, then we had Adam Hansen, Marcel Seberg, and uh, yeah, we just had this train for five years that was just when we when we said go at two, two and a half Ks to go, mate, it was single file <laughs> seventy Ks an hour. It was it was hanging on for dear life. It was so fast. By the way, you were just at his retirement party. How was that? <laughs> mate, it was it was really cool, you know. That was um I think that was a testament to to the culture that we had at, at Lotto Balasol Sordell, you know, it was, yeah. um, I mean, that we had DSs there, mechanics, Swan years, um, the whole lead out train was there. Yeah. You know, Lars Bach was there. Um, and it just shows how good we got on still, you know, and I think there's no question, you know, culture drives performance. Yeah. And the culture we had in that team was just, we were like brothers and we would ride through a brick wall for each other. Mm. And that's what made us so dominant for so many years. It was, there was no egos. There was no, you know, there was no backstabbing. It was just, mate, we're here. And Gripe was such a good leader. He was such a good winner that, you know, he would always be the first person to go, I couldn't do this without my guys. And he would reward us um, appropriately, you know, like he, he knew. He didn't take us for granted, that's for oh. sure. It wasn't just all the Andre Greipel show, and that's why he's such a respected athlete that he is. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky to have a few seasons with him, mm. and he's uh, he's one of the best teammates I ever had. So, uh, yeah, he's good. Okay, getting on. Um, so the podcast in Danish is called Rydersjagong, which means write a lingo, and every guest has to bring some certain lingo or... Uh, cycling expression from maybe from where you're from or yeah whatever uh, something you used to say maybe something back from your lotto days with Andre or just a cycling word or expression yeah I guess it's and, and yeah the one word it's quite difficult I guess when you think about it because cycling lingo in itself is almost another language yeah you know you and I could just sit here and talk cycling all day and and the person down the street wouldn't actually know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. But there's, there's something like I used to always say is on the on the on the radio, I'd be righto boys. Let's let's throw it in the gutter. Yeah, and it's like that that's a mean, good one. But no one would actually know what that meant. If it's the person down the street, what does throw it in the gutter mean? It means literally, <laughs> if the wind is coming from the right, we're going to go flat stick on the left hand side of the road and put everyone in trouble because they're not going to get any shelter from a crosswind. Yeah. So it was always. Throw it in the gutter, boys. Left side. And yeah, it, exactly. Um, I just love that one because it was like a when it came on the radio, it was go time. Yeah, that's a good one. It hasn't been on before. Yeah. So throw it in the gutter. Throw it in the gutter, throw boys. Throw it in the gutter. <laughs> okay. Then let's move on. Your favorite training loop. And it's more like what's the loop? Uh, it's, you have favorite efforts, um, climbs, whatever, cafe stop, if you're a coffee stop guy. I'm definitely not a coffee stop guy, no. But I, I tell you what, around here, my favourite loop is the Vic loop, you know, where you head out uh, St. Gregory, Las Planas, out through a lot over the big climb. What's that climb called? Condre, Condreo, whatever. Sure. Yep, drop down towards Vic, then back yeah. up over into... Um, Santilari. Yeah. Yeah. That's my favourite ride. And there was certain areas, that, like good tempo climbs for me as a sprinter, you know, like good long 20-minute effort climbs that I could do. Big ring. Big ring too. Big chop off in the big <laughs> ring. <laughs> and then there was some nice downhill 
downhill, gradual downhill was where I could get some really nice fast leg speed and then come off with a free lead out and do a couple of really good sprints too. So it was kind of my little all-round ride. If, and I didn't even have to structure intervals on that ride. I just knew that if I got around that ride and did did it in X amount of time or, or kilometres an hour, I, was, I, was on, I had some good legs. Yeah. And then why are you not a coffee stop guy? Uh, I think that changed as I, just as I got older, you know. It's like, you know, with kids, I just wanted to get home. We get, get out, get the work done. Um, four hours is four hours, you know. I'd, I might stop for water if it's stinking hot in the summer, yeah. you know. But a four hour, I've got, I got other shit to do now, <laughs> you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not like I can, four hours can turn into six hours. I've got, yeah, you know, it's just, it just happened like that. And it's like... Yeah, I mean, otherwise cycling, I mean, it's already a huge part of your life. You know, as, an, as a professional athlete, athlete, you're the most selfish human beings on the planet because all you think about, well, you have to, all you think about is how my legs are feeling, how far is my ride today, how do I recover best when I get home? It's all me, me, me as yeah. a professional athlete. And I mean, don't get me wrong, you have to be. It has it, to be like it, that. But if you look in the real world... You're not going to go far in the real world if you are that selfish. But professional sport, and it's not just cycling, it's professional sport. You have to be selfish to be the best in the world. But then you think, start realising as you get older, it's like, you know what, I've got this to do when I get home. I've got this, I've got to go get these kids, I've got to go the shopping, or I'm going to cook dinner tonight. So it's just that sort of morphed probably for the last seven or eight years of my career. I just get out, get the work done, come home. Four hours is four hours. Yeah, I'm actually turning into the same. I'm on the big rides. I usually go on my own, and then I don't have a coffee stop. Mm. It's better to just get it done. Yeah. Okay. Um, your craziest day ever on the bike. You have must have a lot because you were pro for how many? Seventeen years. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I tell you one that never leaves me. Is the 20th That's the one we want to hear about. <laughs> Hold on, here we go. Can I guess? It's probably from the Giro. No. 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 Okay. No. I mean, there's a few. Most guys are from the Giro, no, but there's anyway. A few mongrel guts days in the Giro. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> yeah. But my worst day was 2013 Milan San Remo. Oof. Mate, it started off in Milan. Actually, here's how the day started. This is how bad the day was. <laughs> So I had my, um, my nice white national champion Ridley bike parked. Beautiful. Anyway, mechanics took after it. We went to sign on, came back into the bus for the last coffee before it was freezing out, you know. It was just raining in Milan. Anyway, come out for the race and I'm like, Steve, mate, you seen my bike? I thought he must be just adjusting the brakes or changing the tyre pressure. I... I Where's my bike, bro? And he just, his face just went, boom, instant panic. And I went, oh, this isn't normal. Mate, they fucking, someone, someone stole nicked, it. Someone nicked my bike. No way. Between sign on and fucking, <laughs> oh, so, I, like, I start the day on a spare bike. I've never heard about that before. Yeah, mate. Filthy. <laughs> Beautiful, brand new Ridley, white painted. Oh, with up. silver fern and everything? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I thought, surely it'll turn up on eBay somewhere. I have not seen it, man. Shit. So that's how the day started, in the rain and the cold. And then as we headed towards it, just the Chikino, it just got the rain turned to hail, turned yeah. to sleet, turned to full-on snow, mate. Yeah. For 150 k's, we're just 
frozen to the bone because you couldn't. I get... remember last he was in the last back. He was in the breakaway. He was in the breakaway, and he told stories that he needed the mechanic in the car to open his bars and gels, whatever for it's, him, because mate, and they couldn't do anything. He couldn't do a thing. Could not, and he was so, so co- mate. It's the first time I've heard grown men in the peloton crying. Yeah, just so much pain, hands and feet. Yeah, it was. Ridiculous! And so they stopped the race at 150 k's before the Chiquino Pass. We got on the buses. Oh, it's been horrible up there. If you had to go there, hate. We couldn't. We couldn't. <laughs> the roads are too slippery now. Yeah, so there's so much snow. So anyway, we get in the bus, and everyone's just, you know, like shaking and. <laughs> and I go to jump in the shower, and just turn it up full hot. And Gripple just grabs me. Goes, no, Hindi, no. You'll kill you if you go hot water. Yeah, yeah, that you'll will. Ju- you'll just kill yourself. Yeah, that would be way worse. Yeah, and I, God, so he turned the water on cold, and I jumped in a cold shower, and it was hot, it's mate. Burning still, yeah. yeah. I was like, this is ridiculous. And we had a team meeting, and then I think Quickstep decided not to start because it was optional. Do you want to start now? Because what they did, they took us in the buses down into the into the other side of San Remo to where the coast it, road where it was only raining. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was one of those things where, oh, you're going to start? Oh. <laughs> Oh, you're uh, starting too? Nobody oh. really wants, but, yeah, but it's like group pressure. Yeah, for sure, group pressure. Oh, yeah. you're doing it? Ah, fuck it. Yeah, all right, I'll do it. And the problem was you used all your good warm clothes too. So yeah. it's still raining and cold, but yeah. all your good clothes, really ones that keep you warm, which we're doing fuck all, to be honest, that we were all frozen, but they're all wet now. Yeah. So you're putting on your second sort of level clothes. Anyway, I started that race. Always what you have in Rainback too. It's never yeah. really the good stuff. <laughs> it's, not it's just that all, good. yeah, all bits and pieces, you know. Yeah. Maybe a bit from last season, even, you know. <laughs> but anyway, we were riding along, and I was just going, "This is ridiculous." And and I remember doing an interview afterwards, and you know, I still stand by it. It was like the race became a race where there's only about twenty people in the world that can function in those temperatures. The rest of us were just riding around trying to get to the finish yeah there's probably only 20 guys that could actually function i remember going uphill and this is no joke i was going up one of the copper berters or, or whatever it was leading into the one of the ones leading into the base of um suppressor and i was going up the, and i was pushing as hard as i possibly could but i could have a conversation with you like this now I, my legs would not function so yeah. I, I couldn't tax cardiovascular it was just muscular. They just you would not get your heart rate up. I just couldn't push any harder. They were just blocks of ice. So that was my most miserable day on the bike. I'll never forget that. That was that was horrible. Oh, great story, man. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the coldest one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite race? Mm. Um. Yeah, it's it's a difficult question, isn't it? Um. In total, I think it's probably the Tour de France. Yeah. For me. I, I used to love the pressure. I love. I really performed when there was pressure on me as a, or on the team, and just the biggest events used to really inspire me. Like from my track background, I love the World Championships. I love the Olympics. You yeah. know, I really performed on high, a really high level. I mean, I, I was a good trainer. I trained well. I was a very diligent trainer, but it's not like I set any records on the tra- on the training bike in training peaks on a training ride. Yeah, yeah. it was all in races. Yeah, it was like I just put a number on my back and I just changed into a sort of a different weapon, you know? And um, I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of bike rider because, you know, I coach a lot of athletes now and I have done over the years. A lot of their peaks and their powers and everything, they do these huge numbers in training. They're just like what monsters in training. And you put them in a bunch 
a lot of guys they're trainers not racers yeah. actually it's, it's, that's what I mean yeah I see it time and time again these amazing climbers well on paper climbers mm. they do huge watts per kilo for 5, 10, 20 minute profiles whatever their profiles are yeah like, can't ride in a peloton like yeah. they start the climb at the back of the bunch like what good is that mate <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure you know the type of person i'm talking about but i just feel that when I, as an athlete myself it was my biggest numbers was sometimes i'd look down at the numbers on the srm and just go i, I don't even want to see that number because mentally Insta- instantly you you turn your head i can't do I this i can't do this number yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so i just i used to honestly when the srm because i was in one of the new bees that would came out and we had srms it was still new power i would put my freaking some tape over the srm number during races yeah, yeah. So I, i don't want to see 650 watts at the bottom of a of a 20k climb no 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 way because if you see that you go i know i can't do that I'm, and so you just talk to yourself like instead of going Fuck, I'm going to hang on for dear life and see how far up this climb I get, yeah. then deal with the consequences. Yeah. And then, yeah, sure, the peloton might slow in five minutes and comes right back there and you, you recover. But you, if you see 650, you're like, I can't do this all the way to the top. Chances are nobody can do that all the way to the top. Exactly. But when you see that number just blinking in your eyes, <laughs> you're like, I'm, I'm going to blow, I'm going to blow. What was the best year in the tour then? Um, so 2000. 12 or 14 I'm not sure which one Gripper won five stages and um, yeah I was I was obviously his last meetup man for, for every single one I mean there was times where we were that dominant where I would be posting um, and there's, there's a number of photos I'm in the background doing my victory salute Gripper yeah. was still sprinting He's still sprinting yeah. and I'll roll across the line for fifth or sixth <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that's how fast we were going and I'm coming off the back of Jürgen Rawlins you know who's in, coming off Marcel Seberg so our, our last 1.2 kilometers was just it was just fire oh, I gotta go watch some YouTube from back then yeah, yeah it was yeah some of the some of the stages were and just how early we had it dialed you know and and you know you can't take as you know to to, to get a bunch sprint takes a lot of work before so we had these demons on the front that would ride for us you know and Lars Bach Lars. being one you know he could just he could just turn the taps at 350 watts all day or whatever, whatever it took on his good days he was mate, amazing eh? he could just control he could he could control five guys yeah, yeah. so how's he just on that? his own and then you know the other sprinter teams would come oh we'll come always their, their talk oh we'll come and help after the feed you know so, so Lars is on his own to what feeds at 120ks usually And he's still there with 5K to go. It's still there at 5K to go, holding us in position, yeah. racing the best. So it, it takes a lot to prepare a sprint. But Did again, you guys win in Paris then? Yeah, twice. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that was a nice feeling. Must be a big party when you win in Paris. Yeah, we, we uh, back in those days, you, you could have family, friends, and uh, everyone's just on the bus. So the, this lotto bus was like, it was, I remember it was just sunk down to the ground like the suspension. <laughs> we, just had, we must have had 50, 60 people on the bus. There was, no, there was nowhere to sit. It was all standing room only. Yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was awesome, you know. And, um, you know, quite a few years we chased that green jersey. But, uh, you know, unfortunately we come up against a very, very good Peter Sagan. It was just, and, and he wasn't, you know, he's, he's clever as well. He knew, okay, I'm going to finish close to Gripel in, in the sprints but not beat him one-on-one but I'm going up the road any chance I get over a small hill and pick yep. up four points. So it was really difficult to actually win the green jersey. Mm. What about the worst race for you? Well, worst as in don't like? Yeah. Which race did you hate going to? Uh, it's not that I... 
it's almost it's almost a different word than hate. Like probably feared would yeah. be a better. Yeah, you can also yeah, say that. Yeah, a better description because it would be those early classics like Gen- Weville Gim, um, Kerner. Oh, Kerner was okay. Maybe Hit Volk back in those days. Hit Newsblood. I've done Gen Weville Gim where it's been crosswind from kilometre zero. That's, and it's a 250, yes. 60 kilometre bike race. And freezing cold. And yeah. left, right, up, down, cold, left, right. That, that's, you go to the coast and you get back and it's, oh. Mm-hmm. When I did it, it was... Mm, I think for three hours, the first three hours of a six-hour race were a bit more than 300 average power. Yeah, oh, it's for sure. Yeah, so that, they, just, they just instilled that bit of... But then again, I don't think fear is a bad thing because you race really smart and you race hard when you've got some fear. You I did it that year when people were blowing off the road? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I, I, so I was... And that's the thing. Like, I, even when I was scared of them, I was actually quite good at them. You know, I think my, my best result was... I finished 15th or 13th there one year, you know, like when it's in ones and twos and threes or whatever. So I was actually quite okay at them. But actually a story that my, my biggest fear, I think, was the first time I did Roubaix. Yeah. Man, that bunch, like it's basically a bunch, there's two bunch sprints. The first bunch sprint is to the first sector of cobbles. Yes. And, you know, I, was, I positioned okay, not too the bad. The thing is in Roubaix, when you start the cobbles, the position you have on the first sector is more or less the position you will have for a the long, next 50, 60, yes, 70K yes. until you are riding from Havelu to Dinan. Yeah. Because there you still have a few, like maybe 10, 12 kilometers where the whole peloton can bunch up and uh. positions can change. But from the first sector until then, if you're top 20, from the first sector, you're top 20 when you enter Havelu. For sure. For sure. And that's why everybody wants to be... Yeah. That's why it's a bunch sprint. So that was the... the it's a mad one, that one. But your first time ever doing Roubaix. And then, then I'll never forget the Ardenberg Forest. Like, here's this famous forest that I don't even think cars should drive down. It's that bumpy. Yeah. It's slightly downhill. And I just had this surreal moment where we... I just thought, what the fuck are we doing right now? We were literally <laughs> sprinting as fast as we could to get to this fucking cobble section. And it's downhill. At 70-something k's an hour. Yeah. What are we doing? That was... Uh, one time I've entered Arlenberg with, uh, with the peloton, and it was the most scary moment in my entire career. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because you get into the forest, and it's barriers on both sides. People are standing there cheering, flags are hanging <laughs> on the road, and you enter that with 65, 70k an hour. I was like... Fuck. <laughs> Fully broke. Still having goosebumps from being yeah. there, being in the position fight, and like, yeah, man. Like, oh, sh- this is sad. And, and the Ardenberg Forest is wet or damp 365 days a year. Yeah. <laughs> it's not dry. <laughs> they're slippery cobbles. Yeah, with moss in between yeah, the yeah. cobbles. And, oh. yeah, so they're the, they're the ones I sort of feared the most. You know, I mean, I could talk about like some mountain stages or, you know, there's always fear of time cutting. It's like, oh, shit, I might be on the beach this time tomorrow, you know, in and, and the Giro or the Tour with those hard starts. But, I mean, it wasn't like I... It was just part of the job, you know. It wasn't like I hated it. It was just part of the job. But the fear part was like, you know, I never... I, I never got scared in a bunch sprint. I never got scared descending. I never, you know, I love that sort of stuff. But the actual fact that we're now, what are we doing right now? Sprinting <laughs> towards stones. Yeah. That was just a bit mad. Okay, then I have this one where it's called Who's Your Nemesis in Cycling? Who was that? Uh, 
we all have the guy or few guys that we simply doesn't like. If we see them in the peloton, we're like, fuck off. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, there was just a couple of dodgy French sprinters, I think, that I just... Uh, it wasn't like I hated them. It was just... Oh, but you know, you, you have them, those guys who are always a topic at the dinner table. Or oh, yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. But we, in our bus, we had a list and we used to write, and some guy would come and grab the pen because he's all pissed off and write this <laughs> name. What happened, Lars? What happened? Oh, this motherfucker. He, <laughs> and then yeah. you'd have a nice story. So, yeah, there was a few. For me, it was like the, the sprinter Dumoulin. And he just, I just knew if, if I was around him, there's some trouble was going to happen. Yeah. He was going to clip a pedal in a corner or he's going to bump someone. He was just, it was just messy, you know, and, and for me, a bunch sprint or a lead out or, or the arrival into the, into the final, it's all about smooth and calm and just pick your line and, and, and commit to the line. Don't move. It's not damn, 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 damn. It's not on, off, on, off the gas. For me, it's about as smooth as possible, carrying as much entry and exit speed of corners and just be really calm and relaxed about every move you make in the final 2K. Not erratic. And when he's around you, everything was erratic, mate. Yeah. So he was probably one of the guys that... Uh, that um, yeah, he was often on our, our our love list in the in the bus. Love list, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was his f- Sam Sam yeah. Dumoulin? Yeah. Yeah, 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 small guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you were yeah, you now you are our guy in in Israel. You're the lead out guy mm-hmm. who's giving up the whole. You do the whole preparation, talk through the sprints and everything, but. So you're a lead-out expert. Maybe explain to the listeners the perfect lead-out. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a, a pretty big uh, title to be instowed upon me, but it's, I think the fact that I'm able to do that is just, I think, the respect that the riders have for the job I did as an athlete, as, as a pro, uh, and how often we pulled it off. It wasn't like we had the good plan and oh, we got it one time out of ten. Like, we... When we were there, and we nailed it every single time, and and for me a lot of it was the communication and just and just the trust that because I was the guy calling the shots in front of Gripple, stay left side, stay left side, you know, and they're like, how the fuck does he know to stay left side? But yeah. you know, I'd done this Google search, I'd, I'd looked at the road, I knew, or I've done the sprint ten times before. Yeah, stay left side, wait, wait, and then the call would come. Yep, now we go because they want to. Everyone gets nervous in a bunch sprint. Wait, 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 no, don't go, you know, because I'm for me. I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm just nice and cool and calm. When everyone's around me and panicking, I was always cool and calm. But so the key to a, a bunch sprint, sorry to answer your question, I went on a bit of a tangent there. Answer your question, it, it, it's, a, it's a smooth delivery of power that increasingly gets faster. So, you know, you can start anywhere from 5Ks out. And when I say starting, it means, and this is the thing I had to teach Matthias Brandley, was if I say at the front it means at the front not on the front yeah so there's a big difference because and then and then when you when you decide it's time to go you don't have to just go full gas noise 100% you race the guy that's beside you you only just have to be and if you see a turn or like that and I'll have done the pre 5k to go it's 10 guys half wheeling exactly yeah and if you can just slip back that half wheel or three quarter bike length you can take a lot of shelter. Mm. So you're, you're actually still you're at the front, but not on the front. And that's, I repeat that time and time again. Guys, we're at the front, we're not on the front. And you can see the, the teams that are on the front and going full, they're nowhere in the final 2K. Yeah. 
And then if it comes to a corner, I've said, mate, we need to be, you need to turn top five in this corner, make sure, and then wait for your team. Boom, 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 you know, because I'll, I'll tell them. What, and then the roundabout, what side? I've looked at the roundabout. Mate, shortest left side of this roundabout. Don't go right side. You're going to lose 20 places. Small things like that. And then 2K is kind of your, your launch time. That's when you can put all your watts down. Yeah. And, you, you know, and, and the, distance, the distance each rider does gets shorter, but the speed gets faster. Yeah. So, like, our last man, say, for, for, um, for Giacomo or, or whoever we had sprinting, Zabel, he would take off at 500 or 450 and do 250 and drop the sprinter off at 200. Yeah. So the sprinter does 200, lead up man 250, 300. Guy in front of him would be maybe 300, 350. It's sort of, as it gets faster, obviously the distance gets shorter. But then there's a lot of different variations of sprints. Um, are we headwind? You know, we shorten it up. If it's tailwind, we lengthen it. You yeah. know, you can go longer in a tailwind. Is it technical? Great. Get to the front early in a technical one because when you go through the corner first, you don't have to go around that corner as fast as humanly possible. You then you don't have a gap to close after the corners. Like, then you are, you're setting the speed. But the key with the, every corner is you can set the speed spot mm. on, but you get... You get 15 metres freewheeling into the corner, through it, and then you have to wait if you're early and wait for your... T- and then go. So you're getting 15 seconds rest. Yeah. So you can extend again. So it's, if it's really technical, you can take your time through the corners and dictate. So there's, there's a lot of tactics that come into... But that's where a lot of prep into a bunch sprint comes in. Oh, and, you know, I'm meticulously look through Google Maps, but that's the thing I enjoy too, is work out how, how I would prepare this now if I had Andre on my wheel. How would I do this? Yeah. And it's because it's essentially the same sort of setup that we have. Um, Alex Dowsett, Matthias Brandley, um, uh, Zabel, Giacomo, um, Jenta Beermans, we had him there at the Giro as well. So we, we, yeah. we did have some horsepower. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, um, that's basically it. It's a, it's a progression in speed over probably the last... You hold, hold, holding position from 5K to 2K at the front, not on the front. And then 2K is to go is when you can start lighting the the yeah. afterburners yeah cool um we're in the off season now when you were a rider what did you look forward to the most when the season was ending how uh, do you like to spend your time in off season yeah so i'd uh, migrate back to summer so i'd head back you to, go back to yeah, you, down you under. had summer all year round yeah yeah exactly so i'd go back you know down under whether it was new zealand or australia um, but yeah, there was just plenty of time on the beach, you know, hanging out on the beach. Um, it was nice. Yeah, it was, but I mean, off seasons are so short now. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They just don't last that long. By the time you've gone on a holiday, you know, and then you've gone and done a few engagements or talks or sports awards and next thing you're starting to strap on the, the bootlaces again and, and going for a bike ride. I'm already training now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh. But, I mean, you check the Instagram, you know, social media. It's so obvious now. You check social media. Everyone likes to let people know how much they're training now. But it's almost like there's no off-season. Like, some guys go straight from um, road cyclocross or, or track. So there's actually some other forms of exercise that they, they start doing now. Now, that's definitely changed a lot since I was a, an athlete, for sure. Yeah. Get on the beers. Have a few beers, absolutely. We can relax that a little bit. I think now when I got you talking like this, it's the first time I finished a beer before you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know how to beat me now. <laughs> you found a tactic. Yeah, I just got to get you talking. <laughs> yeah. Cool, Greg. Um, thanks a lot for being here. 
pleasure. Uh, good stories. Good stories. We could good stories. We'll spend a few more after a few more beers, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring the recorder for a, for a night. <laughs> That'd be cool. funny. Thank you, man. Welcome. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Sweet. I'll get her to do a photo and then we're done. Easy.